Scripture reading for today is out of Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Feel free to read along quietly. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of God. Good morning. I'm going to stand up here. I'm a little bit more vertically challenged than others. Um, Nice to see you. My name is Jeff. I get to serve on staff here at Trinity and share the message with you this morning, of which I am grateful and excited to do. For those of you that are not aware, um, Jonathan is up in Mammoth right now getting some much-needed relaxation and rest time with his family. Um, I've talked to him a couple times. I think we have a picture of them. They're enjoying a nice snowy summer up in Mammoth right now, but having a great time, doing a lot of hikes, getting on the lakes, and so he wanted me to say hello to you all. He misses um, Trinity, but again, they're having a great time away. I also want to encourage and remind us, um, Jeff gave a couple announcements about the ultimate Frisbee game today, the meal next week. One of the values we have at Trinity is friendship. And I just want to remind us that friendship is awkward. It's always been awkward, right? Ever since junior high, friendship has always been an awkward time, getting to know one another. So let's press into that awkwardness a little bit. We have bright new neon name tags so we can clearly see each other's names. It's a nice upgrade this morning. But whether you come to the event today, to the meal next week, let's say hi to someone new. Let's invite that awkwardness. And that's a first step knowing someone's name to knowing someone's story and getting to know one another. Now, we've just heard a story 
from Mark chapter 10 of this young man who earnestly approaches Jesus and he falls at his knees and he wants to know how he can know if he will inherit eternal life. Anybody ever thought that? I think this is a pretty relatable situation, right? If there's an afterlife, if there's a heaven, how do I get there is what he's honestly asking. Now, a first century Jew back then would have believed in two things. First, that they were living in what's known as the present age. The present age was evil. It was sinful. It was full of oppression and injustice and lying. Again, I think we can look at our own life and go, yeah, that sounds about right. And they also would have believed in what's known as the age to come. The age to come where the prophecies are fulfilled, where the righteous dead will be raised to life and the world would feel new again. We would experience the shalom, the peace of God. And they believe this would come through a Messiah, a warrior king who would come defeat their enemies and free Israel. And so this young man is obviously still asking this question and he comes to Jesus. How can I be sure that I will be included in this age to come? I'm going to break this teaching up into two parts. The first part is that we would all understand who we are, okay, is this young man's understanding who he is. And once we can do that, then we can understand whose we are. In other words, who we belong to. So let's start Mark 10. If you have your worship guide, the scripture's printed there. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to walk through this passage, this conversation with Jesus Um, 17 says this, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now this word good, if you have a Bible, your worship guide, maybe circle every time we see this word good. It's going to be the most important word in this whole passage. And Jesus responds to this man with a question, as he often does. He says, why do you call me good? Notice Jesus isn't saying, I'm not good. He's not saying, whoa, 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 don't label me as good. He's allowing this young man to call him good. And in a way, he's given us a little clue as to who he is. He's saying, okay, I'm good, but why do you call me that? He's letting us know, not only am I human, but there's something more to me. And as we know, there's a divinity to Jesus. But this man doesn't key in on it. He doesn't pick up on it. But he does pick up on one truth that all first century Jews would know. And it's this, there's no one who is good except God alone. In the Old Testament, we see this throughout and we see it in the New Testament as well. I want to read a couple passages for us. Really quickly, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. First Chronicles 16, 34. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Bible states that the Lord is good, but it also teaches us that there is no one else who does good. Listen to Psalm 14, 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
Paul further backs this up in Romans chapter 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now many of you may be sitting there. As I've been wrestling through this last week going, I understand God is good, but I don't truly understand how no one else is good. I mean, don't we see in our world good acts and good deeds? Don't we see hospitals built? Don't we see the poor cared for? Don't we, can't we in our life look at how we love our family or serve our neighbors? It seems that there's goodness all over, so how can no one be good? Let me give you a little illustration to help us understand that. Jeff had mentioned when he was presiding that we were all created in the image of God. So all of us, Christian, non-Christian, the entire world, we were created reflecting God's glory. We are created in his image, meaning horizontally in this world we can do good deeds. We can do good things. We can love our neighbor. We can care for the poor. We can support the orphan and the widow as James calls us to do. In fact, that's how God has created us to do. So horizontally, we can do good things. And this is going to be a key theme in this passage. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about is this, vertically, okay? There's, there's no amount of good deeds we can do to get to God. There's no amount of good works that we can do to earn salvation. I'm going to come back to this poll in a minute, but let me give you another little illustration to further this point. Some of you may be sitting there going, man, I'm a really good person, though. Or maybe you're sitting and going, well, I, I've got a friend. He's the best dude. Such a good guy. Always seems to love people well. Is always humble. Is always giving. But let's do a little quick fun exercise. Um, how many here, when driving, have a tendency to speed? Raise your hand. Okay. How many are lying about speeding? Not speeding. Raise your hand. Yeah. How many... Roll through stop signs occasionally. Might look at your phone while driving. Anybody here struggle this week with anger or envy or lust or coveting? Right? Jesus tells us in the Bible that the two commands are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Has anybody struggled to do that this week? Okay? So let's assume... Let's assume your buddy, such a good dude, I'm not going to talk about myself because I'm going to go way beyond this. Let's say he sins 10 times a day, right? Two or three times of speeding, maybe glance at his phone, a couple impure thoughts, might have got frustrated with his kids throughout the week. Let's say 10 times a day he sins. Now, again, this is a conservative number if I look at myself. 10 times a day, 365 days a year, Let's say for 50 years. You know how many sins that is? 
182,500 sins. Right? So this guy's such a good guy. He dies. He goes. He's in line at the judgment seat of Christ, sitting there going, 182,500 sins. Do you think he's feeling good about himself at that point? No. Because there's no one that does good, not even one. There's no way for us to earn our way to God. So when Paul says there's no one that does good, we go, yeah, that's true. Because I know my own life, and I know my own heart. But this question Jesus asked, why do you call me good, is going to set up the following conversation. Because if only God is good, then this man, this young man, must understand his failings. In the same way, if only God is good, then we must look at our own life and understand where we have fallen short. So Jesus says to him, in, regard, in, in response to the question, what must I do to gain eternal life? He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father father and mother. Jesus is listing half of the commandments here. Interestingly, he adds defraud in place of covet. We're not exactly sure why, but he may have been keying in on this young man's life. But he lists these five commandments. And as we think about these, what are these commandments? Right? There's 10, but they only list five. These are commandments that are given on how to live with one another. These are horizontal commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. These are things that we do to one another. And as he's saying this, you kind of get the sense that this young man's chest is puffing up a little bit, and he's going, man, I'm in. Right? I've, I've done all this. Look at verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth, I've lived a good life. I've been a good person. And Jesus in 21, looking at him, loved him. The word love is agape. It's a deep, brotherly, family love. Jesus looks at him with the deepest love and says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Do you know what the first commandment is? You shall have no other God before me. So what Jesus does is he gives these commandments based on morality and sets this man up reveals the deep part of his heart and says, you've kept those commandments, but the God you serve is not the God of Israel. The God you serve is a God of possessions and wealth and power and prestige. And he's saying to the man, you've come asking me about eternal life. You obviously still have questions. You've kept these commandments, but you still have doubts. Come, follow me. I will take away your doubts, and I'll give you a treasure greater than any treasure you could ever imagine. I will become a substitute for you for all these possessions. 
A couple weeks ago, we learned about blind Bartimaeus. If you weren't here, Bartimaeus was a blind beggar who was begging on the side of the road, and he hears Jesus' voice, and he calls him, Jesus, Jesus, and he's brought to Jesus, and he recognizes who Jesus is, and Jesus heals him so he can see. And Bartimaeus chooses to follow him. Do you know what Bartimaeus gave up to follow Jesus? Nothing. Because Bartimaeus had nothing. James Edwards, who's a New Testament theologian, said this, the greatest enemies to faith and obedience are self-satisfaction and pride. And nothing removes those bulwarks more effectively than poverty. But this young man is cut to the core. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now this word sorrowful can also be translated as grieved. We find this same word in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is about to be arrested. He knows the death he's heading towards on the cross. And he's praying to God. And the the Bible says that he is sorrowful. He is grieving even to death. So when this man walks away, he is in deep, deep grief. This isn't like, man, that didn't work. Let me go find another path. He is crushed, grieving. Listen to how Tim Keller connects the sorrow of Jesus to the sorrow of this young man. He says about Jesus, he knew he was about to experience Again, when he went to the cross, the ultimate dislocation, the ultimate disorientation. He was about to lose the joy of his life, the core of his identity. He was going to lose his father. Jesus was losing his spiritual center, which was the father, his very self. When Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve. Because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. So who are we? We are sinners, unable to earn our way to God. And in our life, there are many little gods vying for our affection. Jesus met a lot of people along the road. He met a lot of wealthy people. He didn't tell every wealthy person to give up everything they had to follow him. He knew at the core of this man's identity that he served this God of wealth. But I do want to pause for all of us that live in America, whether wherever we are on the economic spectrum, we live in a country that says, get more, more, more. We would be foolish to not pause to look at our own hearts to see how materialism and wealth and power and prestige affects us and to ask yourself, what if Jesus said, give it all and follow me? What does your heart do in that moment? Because I think wealth, though not the only sin, I think it's the most dangerous of all sins because it's the one that creates that false sense of security, one that becomes the center of our identity and will prevent us from understanding the deep love of God. 
Let's transition to whose we are. But those of us that follow Jesus, who do we belong to? 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Kind of a weird phrase, camel going through the eye of a needle. Um, if you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, you might be like, that sounds very strange. What's commonly believed is that this eye of the needle is a small gate. And the common, a common belief that's kind of popped up within the church is that this small gate is such where a camel could get through, but it'd have to bend down, it'd have to squeeze through, it'd be really difficult. And so those with wealth, it's just really difficult to get to God. The problem with that interpretation is this gate wasn't developed until the ninth century. So this camel's gate didn't exist. What Jesus is doing is using humor. He's saying, listen, to his disciples, many of you think that wealth is a blessing from God. It's a common belief at the age where if you're wealthy, that means God is blessing you. And he's saying the opposite. If you're wealthy, it is very, very difficult to come to me. And they were astonished at this. They saw this young man, wealthy, intelligent, educated, wanting to follow God. And they go, who could be saved? If not him, then who? He lived such a good life. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. You can't get to him, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. With man trying to be good, trying to earn favor with God, we will fail. But with God, what is impossible for us is possible with him. And then Peter in verse 28 began to say to him, see, we've left everything. This man couldn't leave everything, but Peter goes, we've left everything. And Jesus says this, truly I say to you, there, was, there is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or land, seven things, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, land, and persecution, seven additional things. There's two lists of seven. Seven is a word in the Bible that means completeness, right? Jesus says, when you have, when you left everything to follow me, it is finished and it is complete. And there will be a great reward, but it will not come without persecution. We see this in the life of Jesus. We see this in every one of his disciples who followed him that they were all martyred for their faith. Because Jesus demands all of us. There's one central theme to this passage is Jesus demands our ultimate 
and final loyalty. He wants all of us, and he promises something so amazing in return. But he's going to ask you, if you're here and you haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, he's going to ask you for everything. It's hard, but the reward is life with him. He he finishes up in 31. Kind of an odd phrase. The many who are first will be last in the last first. This is the upside-down kingdom. A kingdom who says that the first will be last, the last first. A kingdom that also says whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the God, for the gospel will save it. A kingdom that invites us to come and give everything to Jesus, and he in return will give us infinitely more than we could ever imagine. So who are we? We are God's forever. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us, that God will always be with us. Let me close with this. It's a challenging passage. I mean, I've been sitting in this for a couple weeks being like, man, this is hard stuff to think about what God requires of us in Jesus to give everything. And I've had to wrestle in my own life on like, what are the things that he said, if you give, would you give up this? And I go, ah, and that makes me pause and think. But God is faithful. He is just and he promises to never leave you. So as you consider Christianity, as we explore our faith and what Jesus is calling us to, his promises are true. There's a reward much greater than we could ever imagine. Because of this, Jesus is good. Jesus, for our sake, came down to heaven as a baby, though he could have come as a king. Jesus, who wore a crown of thorns when he should have worn a crown of glory. Jesus, who on the cross died the death we should have died so that we could be united with the Father. Jesus, who looks at the 182,500 sins and wipes them away as if they never existed. Who says that we are not good enough to come to him, but he loves us so much that he will come to us. He will make a way, and it's not based on what we can offer, but it's based on how much he loves us. So I want to invite you this morning to come to Jesus. Don't walk away today sad and sorrowful. Maybe some of you need to let go of the things of this world, whatever that is, to attain something so much richer, not just possessions. You get Jesus, and he's enough. Let's pray. Father, I admit that this is a challenging passage. It cuts to the core of my heart and my identity. But Lord, I've seen time and time again how your promises to never leave us nor forsake us are true. We thank you for your son Jesus who came that we may have life and have life to the fullest. A life that money and possessions and power and prestige alone cannot satisfy. 
bear vying after our hearts. These little gods want to take our focus off of you. They want to steer our life in a different direction. So I pray for those right now who are struggling in that area, that you would meet them, that they would sense your great love, the great purpose you have in their life. I pray that we as a community of Trinity would come around one another to love and support each other, to keep our eyes on you, God, to remember your son and what he's done for us. The promise he has given us of a hundredfold of blessings and riches for those who would follow him. And we lift our voices to you, so thankful that the life you've given us, one we don't deserve, one we could not earn, but one we have received because of your grace that we see through your son Jesus. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.